Well, as you see, please turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark. Of course, it is the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark, the full title. We find ourselves in the middle of this tremendous Gospel, and we're coming to the turning point, the focus of the gospel up to this point has been in the the hills of Galilee, surrounding the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus Christ has ministered largely in the villages of that area. And it's going to be taking a turn here as we get into the middle of the next chapter, where he's going to instead focus now on journeying towards Jerusalem, where he is going to, of course, suffer for sins and rise again at the end of the gospel. But here, in the last section that we have before that key turning point, we've got a number of little accounts, little stories concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that are really fascinating and very powerful. And they tie together with the big idea this morning of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. What does faith in Jesus Christ look like? How is it that we often are so slow to faith and what is in the way of our faith? And so really this morning, I want each one of us to be challenged to have a genuine living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough for us to have believed on Christ at one point in the past. We need to be having a daily growing relationship with God and that is only possible through faith. And as we look into the Gospel of Mark today, we're going to get some really key insights, some great reminders as to what is the nature of saving faith. And it starts there in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. One of my favorite stories so far in the Gospel of Mark. Follow along in your Bibles as I read for us the Syrophoenician woman's faith in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. After the previous part of this chapter talking about what it is that truly defiles a person, the evils that come from within, in contradistinction from the concern with ritual purity that had dominated the mindset of traditional Judaism, Jesus focusing in on the true problem of the heart. Now he's going to arise and and go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, as it says in verse 24. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, there's our key word throughout the Gospel of Mark, immediately, everything happens immediately. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is a fascinating story, very brief and yet so pregnant with meaning. Look at the beginning there. We see that Jesus is departing from where he has been ministering around the Sea of Galilee that you have pictured up here. And he's going now to the region, not necessarily to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, but the area surrounding Tyre and Sidon. And he goes and he finds a house there and he's trying to keep it secret. 
Now, why is Jesus leaving the Galilee area? Why is he going to what is a Gentile area? And why is he trying to keep it a secret? Well, this goes back to what was happening in the previous chapters where he had told the disciples that he wanted to get away for some time of respite, for some time alone with God. Remember that in chapter 6, The apostles had returned to Jesus in chapter 6, verse 30, and they told him all that they had done and taught as they went out on their first journey, their first mission, two by two, after having been with the Lord now for a couple of years, now they were ready to go out and teach what they had learned and to do the miracles that Jesus had given them the authority to do. So they come back and and they explain all that they had done. And after this two years of intensive ministry where immediately one thing is happening after another, they're so busy they don't even have time to eat sometimes, he says to them in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And there it mentions that they didn't even have time to eat in verse 31. So they tried to get away around the Sea of Galilee, but then what happened? They had thousands of people flocking to them as they were trying to go out to an uninhabited area, and that's where Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And so after he walks on the water, after he has the confrontation with the Pharisees about ritual defilement, then still on the docket is we need a break. We need a time for rest. We need a time for restoring the soul. And so he hasn't been able to find that at the Sea of Galilee. He's got to go outside of Israel. And yet we find that even when the Lord Jesus goes outside of Israel and he's looking for some time alone with his disciples to rest, he's not able to find it. But that it immediately becomes known that he's there, that his fame has spread even beyond Israel into the neighboring countries around him, and so that people recognize him and his disciples even though he's never been there before. And they're coming, and this one particular woman is begging Jesus for a miracle, for the casting out of a demon from her young daughter. Now, Mark takes pains to point out that this is a Gentile woman, Syrophoenician by birth, as he says in verse 26. Notice Jesus' response in verse 27. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So basically, he's telling her no. She's repeatedly begging him, and he says, in effect, no. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, this is one occasion where I will take a look at the parallel account in Matthew chapter 15. I want to mostly just focus on Mark as we're going through Mark's gospel, but there are a few times where I'll take a look at what Matthew or Luke have to say about the same incident. And so here in Matthew chapter 15, you see that there was this Canaanite woman from that region. He calls her a Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician, Canaanite, two ways of describing a similar people group. She comes from that region, and she was crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So she's a Gentile, but she's recognizing him as the son of David, and she's calling him Lord. So you see that that she has a pretty good understanding of who this is, even though she's not an Israelite. And notice what verse 23 says in Matthew's account. He did not answer her a word. She was repeatedly coming after Jesus and his disciples and begging them, and Jesus completely ignored her request. 
And the disciples, you see in verse 23, they were telling Jesus, you've got to send her away. She's annoying us. Tell her to go. Jesus doesn't answer her, but he also doesn't tell her to leave, which is what the disciples wanted. But instead, after ignoring her for a while and the disciples getting fed up with her, he answers there in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then Matthew will record the following conversation that we have here in Mark in the following verses there in Matthew chapter 15. But Matthew 15 adds a few things there that I wanted to highlight as well. So you see a fuller picture of the interchange that is taking place, perhaps as they're walking through the streets, perhaps at the house where they're trying to be secluded and get some time away. Where they met this woman, it doesn't say specifically. But she kneels down before him saying, Lord, help me. And that's what you have there in the Gospel of Mark. She came and fell down at his feet. So she is insistent. She is humble. She is begging. She is desperate. You see all of this in her actions as recorded so briefly here. Now, Jesus says that it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, Jesus' behavior here has baffled a number of commentators and preachers and Christians because we think of Jesus as just always being ready to show mercy, always being ready to answer prayer, that there would never be a time where someone would come and, and beg Jesus for an act of mercy like this upon a little child and that Jesus would ignore the request. That just seems a little not like the Jesus that we have in our imaginations. Well, I think it's good for us to be challenged by Scripture and to recognize that that Jesus is not always exactly how you imagine him to be. And you have to put yourself into the place of Jesus and try to understand why does he ignore the request for so long? And why does he, in effect, refuse the request by saying it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Well, it's partly having to do with what I told you. He has not come to the region of Tyre and Sidon to do miracles. That's not his purpose for being there. He's trying to take a break from the crowds to be able to have time alone with his disciples to teach them to refresh and restore their souls because he's a human being, they're human beings, nobody can work constantly, nobody can bear the weight of the world on their shoulders without needing rest, without needing a break. And so we see the humanity of Jesus Christ here as well as his deity. Now, not only is he ignoring the woman because he's not sent to the people of Tyre and Sidon, he's not sent to the Gentiles, he's sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it's not my mission to cure every disease in Tyre and Sidon. It's not my mission to cast out all the demons for the people in Tyre and Sidon. That's not what he came for. And so, Just because we feel like we have a need doesn't mean that God owes us a miracle. Just because you feel like you have a need doesn't mean that God owes you a miracle. I think this is important for us to understand. We start to get to the place where we presume upon the mercy of God. We presume upon the grace of God. We think that that God has to, that he owes it to us, that if we go to God and ask for mercy, he's got to give it. Well, that is the exact wrong idea of mercy. Mercy is what is not owed. That's the definition of mercy. It's not owed. 
This woman has no right to claim a miracle from Jesus Christ. It's important for us to recognize that. And you know what? She recognizes that. And that's why she gets the miracle. This woman has no right to claim mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. And she recognizes that. And that's why she gets mercy. We have so much spiritual pride. You know, put the average American into this situation where they're going to God, they're suffering, and they expect that God has to answer their prayer. I'm going to Jesus. And if I go to Jesus, he has to give me what I want because he's Jesus. If Jesus answered to you and said, I don't owe it to you, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and you're a Gentile dog. Would you be offended? So many of us would. We would be offended. Why would we be offended? Because we have spiritual pride. We don't recognize our place before God. We don't recognize that we do not have any claim upon the grace and mercy of God. There is no claim that you have upon the grace and mercy of God. That's a hard place to be. I mean, it's a good place to be, but it's hard to get there. And that's what I love about this story so much, is, is this woman, she doesn't get offended. She doesn't go off and say, can you believe it? I went to the Jewish Messiah, and he called me a dog and said no. Huh. She doesn't allow her pride to get in the way. But she humbles herself and her humility enters into the words of Jesus Christ. She doesn't dispute, she doesn't get offended, but instead she takes him at his word and makes an argument based upon what Jesus Christ has just said. She takes his words and uses them. Notice what she does. She's, she's so persistent, she's so clever, you really have to admire this woman. After he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, and by the way, you're a dog, she doesn't get offended and go off in a huff. She answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Just let me have some crumbs. And this blew Jesus away. I mean... It sounds weird to say that God was surprised, but he was surprised because he's a man. And there's several things in the Bible that surprise Jesus. One, the lack of faith. He's amazed at the lack of faith that people have. But then when somebody comes along and they actually have biblical faith, he's just shocked because he's not used to seeing it. So in the one sense, there's a shock that Jesus experiences because people should have faith and they don't, and so it's shocking that they don't. But then there's another shock that Jesus experiences is that while almost everybody has no faith, there's a few people where you find faith in the least expected places. The places where you wouldn't expect to find it, a Syrophoenician Gentile woman, here she's got the faith that the people in Israel don't have. And that's one of the recurring themes in the Gospel of Mark, and in all the Gospels, really, is that you find faith in the most unexpected places. The places where you would expect to find it, it's surprisingly absent. And the places where you don't expect to find it, you find some pleasant surprises there. And so Jesus marvels at the woman's faith. That's what Matthew records about this incident. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. If she hadn't said this, she wouldn't have gotten the miracle. 
if she hadn't humbled herself and accepted what the words of Jesus Christ to her were, and yet still persisted in her desperation in pleading for mercy, she would not have gotten it. Don't think that this is all just some elaborate test that Jesus was going to heal her no matter what because, you know, Jesus is always going to give everybody everything they want all the time. He's this cosmic Santa Claus. No, if she hadn't responded with this kind of faith, she wouldn't have gotten it. That's how I read it. And so this is a great example for us. And we're going to see, as we continue through the stories this morning, that that this is the positive example, and we're going to see what it is that we're supposed to be desperately asking God for mercy for. Are you desperately asking God for mercy like this about anything in your life? Something for your children? Something for your soul? Something for the lost? Something for the nation? Do you have this kind of persistence? Do you have this kind of humility? Do you have this kind of desperation? We need this. We need this. Let's go on and look at the next section here. Verses 31 through 37. In Mark 7, verses 31 through 37, we have a remarkable miracle. We're given the setting here in the opening verses where it says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of a strange course to take. We don't know exactly why Jesus goes from the region of Tyre through Sidon, which is further north, in order to come back down around to the Sea of Galilee. It's a little bit puzzling. And then to come down to the Decapolis. But it probably has something to do with the fact that he's trying to remain unnoticed. He's still trying to to get time alone with his disciples. He's kind of completed his public ministry in Israel. And now his focus is on preparing his disciples for his coming death and resurrection so that they will be able to carry on the ministry after his ascension. That's becoming the focus now as we're getting to this turning point in the Gospel of Mark. So he's coming and he's going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. We're not told if this man was a Jew or a Gentile. The region of the Decapolis had a large Jewish population, but it was predominantly Gentile, so we don't know. Mark doesn't make a point of whether or not the people that Christ is ministering to in Mark 7 and 8 are Jewish or Gentile, so I'm not going to make a point out of it either. And it says this, that they begged him to lay his hands on him. So once again, the the begging for the miracle. This is the proper attitude towards God in prayer. We are beggars. We beg. And verse 33 says, Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. So here we have a man who's deaf. We don't know whether he was born deaf or whether he became deaf later. We're told that he had a speech impediment, which often goes along with not being able to hear. You can't hear yourself talk, and so you're not able to speak clearly. We don't know how severe his speech impediment was, but this word would seem to indicate a pretty severe speech impediment. It's very difficult to understand what the deaf man was saying when he tried to talk. And so there's a double miracle that takes place here. That one is the restoration of the hearing. But secondly, which might even be more amazing, is the rewriting of the speech patterns. 
If you're going to take someone who has a serious speech impediment due to deafness, and then immediately they're going to start talking clearly, I mean, that is a tremendous rewiring of the neurological system. You think about what's going on physiologically here to make a miracle like this happen. It's quite remarkable. And that could be part of the reason why the people are so astonished by this miracle. When it says there in verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure. This is quite a superlative statement. And now all throughout the gospel, Mark's been saying how astonishing Jesus' teaching and his miracles were. But this one seems to be kind of on another level again. Kind of like the healing of the leper, kind of like the raising of the dead. Here, this healing of the deaf man with this double miracle is causing extreme astonishment among the people. And notice that once again, Jesus wanted to keep it private. He wanted to keep a lid on this. When he performed the healings, he pulled the man aside from the crowd. So he's not trying to make a big spectacle of this in front of the crowd, just the opposite. He's going privately to do this miracle. But... For those who are with the man and for the man himself, he charges them not to tell anyone about it. Once again, he's trying to avoid over-enthusiasm about the healing ministry that he has performed. He has the power to heal, but we're finding out that people's obsession with healing is actually getting in the way of what Jesus Christ's greater mission is. That is to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to preach the repentance that goes along with that. Well, people are so focused on the healings that they're not paying attention to the repentance and the kingdom. And also, they're stirring up political ambitions and designs for Jesus as the Messiah, as deliverer of his people. So the people are not responding properly to the miracles, and that's why I think Jesus is trying to keep a lid on some of these more astounding miracles. Now, he still does the miracle because he's merciful. He doesn't have to. He probably knows that they're going to blab about it. He probably knows it's going to cause him problems. He probably knows it's going to be detrimental to what he's actually trying to do, and yet he still does it because of the amazing mercy of God. Let's not lose sight of that. So he opens the ears of the deaf in the region of the Decapolis. And then we have the next story, which is very interesting. In Matthew chapter 8, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, where Jesus feeds the 4,000. Most likely this is still taking place in the region of the Decapolis, but Mark doesn't say, so we don't know whether this is someplace else around the Sea of Galilee or if this is part of those ten cities that were kind of south and east of the Sea of Galilee, the Decapolis. But whatever the case, and whether these are Jews or Gentiles, commentators like to talk about that, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on what Mark focuses on, and that is a repeat of the miracle that we had read in chapter 6. Remember back in chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. Well, here in Mark chapter 8, he's going to feed the 4,000. So let's read that account in verses 1 through 10 also. Follow along. I'll read it out loud for us. It says this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, Oh, disciples, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And when you read that, you're just like scratching your head going, 
uh, are these different disciples than were there just two chapters ago when he fed the 5,000 people? How can they be this dense? And, and a lot of scholars, they read this passage and they're like, well, it's not really possible for people to be this dense that you know, after the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and now Jesus says, I want to feed all these people out in this desolate place, it's not possible that they would be so stupid that they wouldn't be able to get the idea that he's going to do a repeat of that miracle. Well, it is possible. Don't underestimate the stupidity of people. It's a good rule to keep in mind. Rather than finding fault with the Word of God and say it's not possible recognize that people are quite dense. And here we have an example of the disciples being quite dense. This goes along with what we had in our Sunday school hour, for those of you that uh, enjoyed that with me. When we look at the Gospels, we find here an, an amazing principle that helps to confirm the historicity of the Gospels, that the Gospel writers include the most embarrassing stories about themselves. And this is not normal human nature. Now, think about you know, people starting a religion, like the apostles. And now you know, they've got their churches, they're spreading around the Roman Empire in the early first century, and they're telling the stories about Jesus. And Peter tells the story, and he says, all right, so you know, Jesus fed the 5,000 in the wilderness, and then a few months later, we were out in the wilderness with 4,000 people, and he says, I'm concerned about the people, we need to give them something to eat. And we said how can we possibly feed 4,000 people out here in this desert place? You know, that's not what someone who was trying to build up their authority in the church, that's not the type of story they would tell, that I was such an idiot, I was so stupid. That doesn't cause people to put a lot of trust in their religious leaders. And so religious leaders would normally leave out the embarrassing parts of the story concerning themselves. So it's neat to see that when we're reading through the Gospels, the embarrassing stories about the disciples are included. And in fact, what's really great about the Gospel of Mark on another level is that the good things that Peter does are largely not mentioned in the Gospel according to Mark. Now remember that the Gospel according to Mark is really the Gospel according to Peter. Because Mark was writing down the stories that Peter had been telling for years since the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so this is really Peter's reminiscence. And so Peter doesn't talk about his good parts. He does talk about his embarrassing moments. And that is a great testimony to the, the truthfulness of these accounts. That he's not concerned about building up his religious authority. He's concerned about telling the truth. And that includes his own Folly. So his disciples answered, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And hopefully this is starting to jog their memories. He's asked us this before, hasn't he? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. All right. We're not going to spend too much time on this because I think the main reason this pericope, this little account of Jesus' life is included here is because it's there for repetition. 
So everything I said a few weeks ago about this in chapter 6, remember that now, keep it in your memory, and we're going to be getting to the point here as we get into verses 14 through 21 in just a moment. So let us leave the feeding of the 4,000 for a moment, and we'll come back to it. But before we get to the application of all of this, let's take a look at the unbelief of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Read those in your Bible as I read them out loud once again. It says this, The Pharisees came. So he's gone back across to the region of Dalmanutha. We don't really know much about Dalmanutha. In fact, this is the only place in ancient literature that the village of Dalmanutha is mentioned. And so we don't know exactly where it is because no one else mentions it. There were a lot of little fishing villages around Galilee. Here Mark throws out one that he's the only one who ever mentioned it that we still have his writing left over from. The Pharisees then come and begin to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, No sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, the unbelief of the disciples, their hard-headedness, their hard-heartedness in the previous story, and the Pharisees' hard-heartedness, their unbelief in this story, forms a great contrast to the Syrophoenician woman's faith. The Syrophoenician woman is a Gentile, And yet, she humbles herself, she has the type of saving faith that Jesus is looking for, whereas the disciples themselves are dense, and the Pharisees are hostile. Now, it's worse to be hostile than it is to be dense, but both are bad. You don't want to be either one of these. The Pharisees' hostility is shown clearly in Mark's text by the fact that they came to argue with him, and that's a good translation. They're coming to dispute with him, and they're opposing him publicly. They view themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy. They think that Jesus is unorthodox, and therefore they are demanding a sign from heaven. Now, this has got to be frustrating. You're raising the dead. You're walking on water. You're feeding thousands of people. You're opening the eyes of the blind. You're opening the ears of the deaf. You're cleansing leprosy. And people are demanding a sign. We want to see a sign. I gave you like a thousand of them already. That wasn't good enough. And that's the way it is with people. There are those people who no matter how much evidence you give them, they're going to reject it and demand more evidence. This is important for you to understand as an evangelist and as an apologist. There are those people you will meet who are hostile in their heart towards God, openly so. And they're going to demand evidence. Prove to me that the Bible is God's word. Prove to me that God exists. Don't waste your time. They don't need more proof. They don't need more evidence. And whatever proof or evidence you give to them, they're just going to discount it and then ask for better evidence. That's what's going on here. You'll find it in the world today. Jesus does not satisfy them. Jesus does not play games with them. He just tells them, I'm not going to give you a sign. And in fact, he says it in a quite strong way, which doesn't quite come across in the translation. It's said this way, literally, if this generation gets a sign, and then it just leaves it hanging there. And then you're left to fill in the, what if this generation gets a sign, then what? And the then what could be like, may I die? 
which is how the Hebrews would normally say this type of oath. You know, if I do this for you, I'd rather die. Kind of the idea that's being brought across here in an abbreviated form. It's an oath type of negation. And so Jesus is taking an oath saying they're not going to get a sign. Now, Mark just leaves it at that. No sign for this generation. The other Gospels mention that they will get the sign of Jonah, but I'm not going to be preaching on those Gospels this morning. I'm sticking with Mark. Mark just says no sign. Not giving you anything. Nothing for you. And then he leaves. And when he leaves, you kind of get the sense that he's not just leaving, but he's also saying goodbye to you. That's it. You had your chance. You're hostile. You're unbelieving. I'm not doing anything else for you. He leaves and goes to the other side. Why does this generation seek a sign? Mark chapter 9, we'll get to here in a week or two. Jesus opines about the people of Israel, and he says, O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The unbelief of people was wearisome to Jesus. It was a burden that he hated bearing. He did not like being here with us in our unbelief. It was annoying. It was emotionally excruciating. For someone who loves God and who's thinking rightly, to be around a bunch of people who hate God and disbelieve everything he says. It makes no sense. It's kind of like, you know, when you're losing your patience with your children, and like, I've told you a thousand times and you're not getting it, and just how can you not understand this? That, that's kind of how Jesus felt. Like, how can you not understand this? How is it that you are so blind? He sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? No more signs are going to be given. Paul writes about this Jewish tendency as he was writing his letter to the Corinthians, and it had not changed after the resurrection, and it wasn't changed even going out of Israel to other parts of the empire, as far away as Achaia and, and Greece. In Corinth, the Jews also were the type of people who demanded a sign, as the Jews were scattered around and had synagogues everywhere. And they treated Paul the same way they treated Jesus, always wanting more evidence, always wanting a sign. If you don't believe the evidence that God has given to you, your problem is not that you don't have evidence. Your problem is you refuse to believe against all the evidence. Don't give people what they want. They don't know what they need. Don't supply evidence to those who don't really want it. And don't argue with a fool. Those are all good wisdom principles. Mark chapter 8 then brings us to our conclusion. As we've seen the hostility of the Pharisees, We've seen the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. We've seen the hardness of heart, the denseness of the disciples. Here, it all kind of comes to a conclusion in this little story about how the disciples missed the whole point once again. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. This is where we're going to be ending our sermon today. I'll read it out loud for us. Now, they, that is the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (sighs) 
And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I think he's probably exasperated. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Where you would expect there to be faith, there is not where you would expect there to be spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom. It's lacking. Now, what is lacking here? What is the problem? What have they not understood? What have they not seen? What have they not believed? What was the point of the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000? What was the spiritual lesson there that they were so slow to understand? Jesus warns them, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians, as I've told you before, they didn't have a lot in common. The Pharisees, they were strict religious people. The people of Herod, his group, they were a political party that had very little to do with religion. Uh, They're kind of like most of our politicians who say they're a Christian but do everything opposite of what Christ teaches. That's kind of Herod. And so these two don't have a lot in common. So why does Jesus link them together? Why do they have to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Is it the same leaven? Is it different leaven? What exactly is Jesus' point here? Well, reading the commentators, the scholars, they don't really agree. They have all different kinds of answers as to what exactly the leaven of the Pharisees is and what exactly the leaven of Herod would be. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, I think we get a pretty good clue where Jesus makes it more explicit, where he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, to be fair to the scholars, this isn't the only place where Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. And in other places, he mentions something a little bit different. In Matthew, he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees being their teaching. But maybe their teaching is hypocritical teaching. So maybe they're not that different. Maybe the hypocrisy and the teaching are are two different ways of describing the same thing. Hypocrisy. What do you know about religious hypocrisy? What do you know about political hypocrisy? Really, they're not that different, right? Religious hypocrites and political hypocrites both have the same problem. And what is that problem? They don't fear God. They fear man. They're not concerned about God's interests. They're concerned about their own interests. The religious hypocrite and the political hypocrite are both trying to advance themselves. And they do so by manipulating people, putting on a facade. What's putting on a facade? Well, that's hypocrisy, right? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and beware the leaven of Herod. You think that you're better than the politicians? If you were in their place, that you wouldn't be a hypocrite? You think you're better than the religious hypocrites? who are concerned about their image, their following, their status, their resume? You're not. If you were in their position, you might fall into the same temptations that they're falling into. And you are falling into that temptation in little ways, are you not? Are you not concerned about your image? 
Are you not concerned about what people think about you? Are you not concerned about your advancement? Are you not concerned about your position? Yes, you are. I know it because I am. Beware. That's not the pathway. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. That's the way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So don't get so full of yourself and think that you're not like those hypocrites. You've got to be on your guard. That's what Jesus is teaching. But that's not all that Jesus is teaching here. That's, that's just the occasion for his disappointment. He just had the confrontation with the Pharisees, and so now he's telling his disciples, that, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't ever become like that. When I'm gone, and you're here 30 years later, and people are looking to you, and you're the head of the church... You're the elder in the church. You're the teaching pastor in the church, Peter. Don't be like Herod. Don't be like those scribes that we just talked to back on the shore. But when Jesus tells that to them, it completely goes past them. They don't spend any time thinking about it. They don't spend any time talking about it. Their minds are set on earthly things. All they can think about and talk about is it was your job to get the bread. No, it was your job to get the bread. Well, we were left in a hurry. I didn't have time to get the bread. Don't get up mad at me. That was all that they were thinking about, and they were missing the whole point. This is like Martha and Mary. Martha, you're concerned about many things, but there's really only one thing that's necessary, and Mary has chosen the better part, and that's not going to be taken away from her. You see, it's possible for us, it's a great danger for us to be like the disciples, we become so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Beware that you do not become so earthly-minded that you are no heavenly good. And all you can talk about is, did we get enough bread? The whole point of Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is don't worry about the physical things. Don't worry about the physical things. What about my mortgage? What about my house? What about my job? I've got to be the politician. I've got to put on a good image to, to keep my job. And, and I've got to you know, be what everyone wants me to be so that I can secure my place and have a good retirement and don't have to go out and look for a different job. See, we become so focused on these things and it, it subtly takes over our heart and our thinking. Who cares about my house? Who cares about my retirement? Who cares about my job? God does. I don't have to care about that. I just have to care about doing what God tells me to do. And then God will make sure that I've got clothing. God will make sure that I've got food. Have you ever gone a day in your life where you've starved to death? No, you're here. You ever gone and, and frozen to death? No, you're here. Why are you here? Because God took care of you. You might fool yourself and say, no, it's because I took care of me. I was looking out for number one. You fool. You can't look out for number one. Besides, you're not number one. God is number one. You should be looking out for God's interests and let God take care of you. You're his child. You're his servant. God doesn't let his servants starve. God doesn't let his servants die of hunger. He'll take care of you. The disciples only have one loaf of bread. Who cares? Focus on spiritual things. That's the point here. The disciples were hard-hearted over and over again. They did not get this lesson. Now, thankfully, after the resurrection, I think they got it. The Holy Spirit came and led them into all the truth. But without the Holy Spirit, they were making no progress. 
Their hearts were hardened about the loaves in Mark chapter 6. Their hearts are hardened here again in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus is getting tired of it. He's getting tired of it. Oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Well, it doesn't sound like Jesus. He doesn't get tired of unbelief. Yes, he does. He gets tired of unbelief. That's what the Bible says. And I'll take the Bible Jesus over our imaginary Jesus. He's tired of my unbelief. He's tired of your unbelief. So stop being unbelieving. Believe. Let's go on to the application. We've got two examples to follow. The E, the example to follow. The first one I want to draw your mind back to is the humble, persistent, desperate faith of the Syrophoenician woman. You humble yourself before God and he will exalt you at the proper time, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Persistence in prayer comes from an understanding of your desperate need and that God is the only one who is able to meet your need. Who's going to save the soul of my children? God is. Do I love my children? Do I care about their souls? Do I pour myself out in desperate prayer, falling at the feet of Jesus and begging Him and not turning away until He saves the souls of my children? Do it. Be like Monica, who prayed unceasingly for years for Augustine, her son, who was wandering in all kinds of false philosophy and deception and sin and immorality. And his Christian mother prayed for him with the same faith that this Syrophoenician woman prayed. And God answered. That's how you get mercy from God. Is there sin in your life? Or you have a spiritual blindness? You have a hardness of heart? Are you going to God with a desperate prayer? Begging Him to open your eyes, to open your ears, to make your dull, insensitive heart live again. That's how you get mercy. But until you recognize your desperation, until you recognize your lowliness, until you recognize your unworthiness and and have this kind of prayer, this kind of faith, you won't receive. God doesn't owe it to you. He doesn't owe it to you. But if you beg in the right spirit, he will give it because he's gracious. That's the promise of God. There's a scripture verse that helps us with the the next point, the sin to confess. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This speaks precisely to the problem, the sin that was at the heart of the disciples here when they were discussing that they had no bread when Jesus was trying to teach them spiritual things. And Paul writes this to the church, hoping that we'll get the lesson because we have the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead us into the truth. And Paul says, under the command of the Holy Spirit to you today, if then you have been raised up with Christ, and you have, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's what God wants you to do. That's the command of God. Stop worrying about how much bread you have and start worrying about your spiritual poverty. You are blind. You are deaf. You are weak. You are naked. Go to God and ask Him for spiritual sight, for spiritual ears, 
for spiritual clothing. And he'll give it in his mercy. Don't be so earthly minded that you are no heavenly good. Let's pray. Lord God, we need reminders from your word and my heart needs these reminders. Lord, where's my desperation? Where's my persistence in prayer? Where's my humility? Lord, how often we we fall into this spiritual pride and this spiritual insensitivity that completely chokes out a heart of prayer. Lord God, may we not be offended by your word, but may we humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that you might exalt us at the proper time. Lord, let this be a movement, a wave that goes throughout the whole congregation, spreading from one heart to another. Instead of spiritually dull people dimming one another, may you light a fire, a light within the hearts of many in this congregation that will spread around and be an example. Lord God, dwell among us in power. Dwell among us in wisdom. Dwell among us in sincerity so that we may not be leavened the way that politicians are leavened. That we may not be leavened the way that religious leaders are leavened. But let us be real and true in your sight. Lord, do this work for our good and for your glory. We beg of you. Amen.